This movie, Parallel Mothers, is much more serious. You know, it still has some of the threads of, of his movies in it, so you know that it's one of his movies, if only because of the, the treatment of how he shoots the women in the shots. But I love what you said about it being a glorious soap opera that is so on point. This is such a sophisticated movie for him. I don't know why it wasn't nominated for Best Picture. Hello and welcome to At The Movies with Mike and Marie, a show where two film professors talk about movies. I'm Marie Westhaver. And I'm Mike Giuliano. And today we're talking about two Penelope Cruz movies, Parallel Mothers and The 355. We're going to start off with Parallel Mothers, Mike, which has you know, made a real splash in terms of the Academy Awards and has Penelope Cruz in what I think is probably the best role of her career. What do you think? Well, speaking of the Academy Awards, she's been nominated for Best Actress here, and she has worked very closely with the Spanish director, Pedro Amodovar, to give some of the relevant biographical background here. Amodovar has made 21 films at this point. He's a 72-year-old filmmaker, still going strong as a director. He's beloved within our own film department at HCC. On a very personal note, I I teach a, a course on Spanish film history, and I show both Women on the Verge of a Nervous Breakdown and All About My Mother. And also in our world cinema course here on campus, we use his film Volver. And so Penelope Cruz is, you know, a constant for us as much as for anyone else in that respect. Now, in terms of this particular performance, this particular film, there are great partnerships between directors and actors. And not to get sidetracked with some of those over over, uh, the history of film, but just to present occasion, the fact that Penelope Cruz and the director, Pedro Almodovar, have worked together eight times now. And and so over many years, they, they keep returning to each other here. And so this is a curious thing to talk about in the sense that it doesn't hurt to be beautiful. You know, there are actors, actresses where it's just like, you know, there's the physical presence, the beauty, if you will. But that's not always enough. I mean, there's some beautiful actors who's like, okay, you know, you know, beautiful person, almost like you know, turning pages in a magazine sort of thing, like, okay, another another you know, glamour shot. But some really beautiful actors are also really gifted. In other words, they're not just stars, they're actors, right? And Penelope Cruz goes in that category of, I mean, she's just like just incredibly beautiful. But you know what? Over time, as we've watched her in her career, she's a really gifted actor. And with Amodovar, you know, he loves working with actresses. He's known as, you know, in the old days, he would have been called a woman's director, right? Back in the Hollywood studio days, like George Cukor kind of directors. He's that way. He loves that, that milieu. He loves being in the kitchen. Let's put it that way, where all the women are cooking and, and gossiping and talking about the men in their lives and how bad they are. And they usually are in his films. And so, you know, he has the strong core of female actors he's worked with for decades. Penelope Cruz is certainly in that category. And my goodness, what a pleasure it is to see her in this film. Marie, let me hand it back to you at this point, and we'll start to talk more about it as a film in terms of the character she plays and how this holds together as an Omodovar film. You know, I'm glad that you gave that sort of background about the movies that he makes, how many he's made with Penelope Cruz. And, you know, in um, award ceremonies and things, you know, she just simply refers to him as Pedro. So, you know, I feel like, you know, Pedro is, is like a director that we feel like we know because he does such personal films. And I think he is really good at directing women's pictures, women's concerns. And given that this movie is about two women who give birth on the same day and they meet each other in the hospital, you can't get more personal than that than watching two women go through giving birth and all the things that happen afterwards. Not everybody could pull that off. He does a wonderful job of directing both actresses. And Penelope Cruz really gives a very nuanced and personal 
and risky, I think, performance. At no time, by the way, does she ever not look like Penelope Cruz. In fact, my favorite part of the whole movie is where somebody comes to see her and she is talking to them on the phone. She says, well, I look terrible. You know, you have to give me time to, to fix myself up. She looks fine. She looks great. She looks like Penelope Cruz. So it's like, this is looking terrible. And then the next scene, it's like the exact same scene, but she's brushed her hair. So I did think that scene was hilarious. Did that make you laugh too, Mike? I laugh so much here because the thing about Pedro Almodovar is he deals very much with contemporary women, their concerns, and in all the places where, you know, whether it's in the kitchen, the living room, the corporate office, whatever, he's, he's in that woman's world, if you will, as the women gather to talk and usually talk about and against the men in their lives, as, as I said before. But the thing is, he's very much a movie, movie guy. In other words, he loves the old glamour movies. He loves, you know, Hollywood stars. He loves all that glitz and glamour. And so, you know, and, and he's very keenly aware of how to present that. But what he does is he presents contemporary stories with characters that sometimes are not meant to be, you know, movie stars, not meant to be out of the glamour world, but they always look glamorous. It's what I'm getting at there is whatever the job, whatever the occupation, whatever the job, some of these are just like office jobs or just, you know, standard issue work lives. But the women look fabulous. And it's it's that way in which, and he's having fun with this, obviously, that, you know, he'll have Penelope Cruz or someone else say, oh, I'm a mess today. I'm a wreck today. I'm thinking we all should be such a mess. We all should be such a wreck. And that's, again, there's the level of, I mean, he's seriously concerned with the issues that are raised. But by the same token, he enjoys frivolity. He enjoys people, you know, dressing up and acting out. And it's that, you know, he, his earlier films are like high camp sometimes. He loves to have over-the-top stories, really extreme melodrama. And so if a female character is suffering in an Emeldovar film, she looks great suffering. Her hair is in place. She's got great shoes on. If she has a fight with somebody, she swings a designer bag at the person. You know what I mean? It's that kind of a thing. These are what I call movie movies. And that's not said in a disparaging way. He just loves cinema and that, that whole history of female stars who just look great on screen. He's totally a fanboy that way. He's totally immersed in that. What do you think of that, Marie? Because he really does work in some of that sort of like old school movie star glamour in stories that otherwise can be quite contemporary and quite compelling and quite believable, but he's also evoking just the sense of beautiful people, you know, acting out on screen. What do you think of that notion? I think you're definitely onto something. I think one of the genius moves of using Penelope Cruz is he gets to have a muse that kind of goes through a th like a thread through all of his movies. He's also really good at, you know, women's issues, as we've already kind of touched on. I'm thinking about, to me, the, the most memorable of one of his most recent movies is all about my mother, again, with Penelope Cruz. And, you know, the whole idea of what we would call a women's picture back in the day, where you really go into the kitchen and you talk about the things that women talk about. And he's completely unapologetic about it. He doesn't feel the need to, well, I should balance this by making sure, you know, I give the male characters the same amount of screen time or thought or consideration. That's one yeah, of the fun parts of watching his movies. It absolutely is. And I love the way you said he's unashamed about it. He doesn't feel like he has to apologize in any way for it. It's like, you know, he loves making movies. He loves working with these female actors and yeah, touching on serious women's issues, but also he, he's fine with being silly sometimes, right? With just, you know, acting out. So his soap operas oftentimes do have a sort of edge to them that, that's a decidedly comic edge. You know, that's one reason why they're so enjoyable. But here's what I want to say next, really, is that you look over his career and it really, you know, adheres to what Marie and I are saying about it at the moment. But some of his more recent films have been more serious. 
And his film in 2019, Pain and Glory, which is extremely autobiographical. If you're a film director and you're upper middle age, the issues you face, and that actually is a film that deals with, with you know, the male psyche uh, as much or more as with, with, with the female. So that's one of his more serious films. And in general, I would say his films, which early on were darkly comic, sometimes just really goofy, silly comic. And that's fine. They're really great fun to watch. But uh, in recent years, I think he's become a bit more contemplative. And here's my case in point. The film we're talking about strikes a balance that works really well for me. Everything we've been saying about it so far, you'd, you'd expect like a sort of you know, out there comedy and, and extreme plot twists, which we're not going to reveal, no spoilers here, but the two women going to the hospital, give birth and so on. No more about it from that point on, from our perspective. We're not going to spoil the story for you. But it does have all kinds of twists and turns, as you expect in Nemodora. And some of them so extreme, you have to laugh, right? And some of them are serious, quote unquote. Some of them just silly, like, oh, come on, what, could, what else could happen? Or oh, this, that, you know, that, that kicks in. But here's what I really want to say about becoming more serious. As it gets deeper into the story, and again, not to give a real spoiler, but the fact that the Penelope Cruz character, her family history, the character's history, does go back through the Spanish Civil War period in terms of when, you know, it was such a horrible experience and in terms of so many people killed. And from her family's perspective, they were on the side of the Spanish Republic, the losing side. So in effect, they're the ones being shot down and, and buried in anonymous uh, graves and all that horrible backstory there involving the Spanish Civil War. And as the film goes along, that becomes more pronounced within the storyline. And there's nothing ha-ha funny about that whatsoever. And he's not being ironic or campy or any of that. And it's not high heels and lipstick and all that. No, it really gets into that as to what, what was involved. Now, earlier in his career, Amaldovar had largely ignored not just the Spanish Civil War cinematically, but the long dictatorship of Francisco Franco. Remember, the Spanish Civil War lasted from 1936 to 1939. After Franco's nationalist forces on the right won that war and the Spanish Republic, the left, if you will, lost and then really lost in the sense of, you know, brutal tortures and murders and just suppression. That long, dark period when Franco was the dictator lasted from 19. 39 until Franco died in 1975. Amadovar is coming on the scene as a young, initially theater director, and then, of course, film director. He's coming on the scene in the early to mid-1970s. He's part of a larger arts movement in Spain called La Movida. A loose translation might be the happening, um, you know, the, the movement, the happening. Young people gathered in Madrid, for the most part, who are exploring the arts. It's not just film, it's theater, it's the, you know, painting and, and so on, but they're all part of a larger effort. Now, some of them are overtly political, as in they're obviously to the left, and, and they're going to be opposed to Franco and, and the aftermath of Franco. Many of them, though, like Emma Dovar, just want to, you know, they want to make movies, they want to go out to bars and nightclubs, they want to have a good time, you know, it's that bohemian phase, and they're not particularly, quote-unquote, political, at least in, in the, the films that they're making. Amal Dovar is the case in point. He said before that in his early cinema, he, he basically ignored Franco as a presence and just went and made the movies he wanted to make. Let me give an exact quote from Pedro Amal Dovar to that effect. Years ago, my revenge against Franco was to not even recognize his existence, his memory, to make my films as if he had never existed. Today, I think it fitting that we do not forget that period and remember that it was not so long ago. Now, that quote for me evokes exactly what's happening in this film. 
because the initial concerns are all with the Penelope Cruz character and she's pregnant and then she goes in the hospital and there's another woman going in to deliver at the same time. It's a typical Amadovar melodrama. It's a kind of glorious soap opera that he revels in and all the twists and turns that we won't spoil for you here. But as it does get into the twists and turns, she starts to increasingly explore her own family history, her own relatives, and it's very much a city versus country kind of a scenario. And that you know she's very much a city person now, but her family has rural origins, rural roots, and it's out there in the countryside that the older relatives and indeed the secret burial grounds and all that—that's where all that is rooted, if you will. And she's going to travel from town to country that way. And when she, and traveling to the country takes her back to a more traditional way of life, which includes that very painful episode not just of the Spanish Civil War, but everything that followed after that during the Franco dictatorship. And here's Amadovar, now that he's 72 years old and having made Pain and Glory, which is very much about to be a film director in, the, in, in his late 60s, early 70s, now reflecting back to a time really from before when he was with us on earth. I mean, he's thinking back to the world of his parents and grandparents and so on, but that legacy, which he had not dealt with in his films to any great extent previously, but now, it's almost like later in life, now he thinks, no, it's not just his history, it's the history of Spain. And it's time to really start to acknowledge that in his films. I found that incredibly moving in this film. And again, without going into specific scenes as to where I was really moved by it, but the fact that the picture itself goes from what initially could have been farcical, really, really silly material, it has that, but it goes from that into things much deeper, deeper on two levels, on the level of what it would be like for Penelope Cruz's character, to have a child and everything that's going to happen with that child, that's all really serious at a certain point. It's not ha-ha funny. And then secondly, that second level, as she delves into her own family history, go back to the Spanish Civil War, and it's just horrific what her family went through. Let me get your thoughts on this. You know, I'm agreeing and making little notes to myself to make sure I mentioned things while you were talking. I agree with you so much that you can really tell how much more sophisticated Almo Duvar is with this movie. I'm thinking about his very, very early movie, Tie Me Up, Tie Me Down, which is, uh, I believe, Antonio Banderas's first film at age 19. But he is completely, uh, the way that it's shot, you know, it's almost an afterthought that it's uh, Antonio Banderas. You're really watching the women in that movie. And that movie, it's kind of soft porn. It ventures into camp. It's, it's zany. But I would say that all those things are things that you could probably see in his movies going forward. This movie, Parallel Mothers, is much more serious. You know, it still has some of the threads of, of his movies in it. So you know that it's one of his movies, if only because of the, the treatment of how he shoots the women in the shots. But I love what you said about it being a glorious soap opera that is so on point. This is such a sophisticated movie for him. I don't know why it wasn't nominated for Best Picture. I agree so strongly with you. Uh, you know, there are 10 nominations for Best Picture. Parallel Mothers should have been nominated. Look at it this way. Penelope Cruz got a nomination as Best Actress, right? Well, you know, she didn't direct herself, you know, so, so why didn't Emma Dover get a, a nod as, you know, director? He was not nominated for director. The picture was not nominated for Best Picture. It really is a shame here that this film didn't get more recognition uh, at the Academy Awards. It's one of Emma Dover's best films. He certainly had nominations in the past. And, you know, he's been acknowledged by the Academy Awards with you know, a number of nominations. So it's not griping at that level. It's just simply griping at the level of his new picture is one of his strongest. But you wouldn't know that based on the Academy Award nominations, with the exception of, of Penelope Cruz's Best Actress one. Marie, what do you make of that? Because to me, it seems like just an odd kind of gesture to give her the nomination, but otherwise to ignore the film. 
I agree. And I don't understand it any more than you do, given that you talked on a previous episode about how it seems like the Best Picture nominees are all, not all, but a lot of them seem to include sort of a nod towards famous directors who made a movie last year that was at least, you know, good enough people, some people saw it. So I don't know why this wouldn't be in there with that canon of good directors who, you know, this for me, I think is probably his best movie yet. It seems like a slight that he's not nominated or the movie's not nominated. Also for direction, I don't know why it's not in there for that. But in terms of best actress, do you think the Penelope Cruz has a chance against Jessica Chastain and Olivia Coleman and uh, Nicole Kidman and Kristen Stewart? Oh, gosh. I always hate to guess in matters like this because I'll guess wrong. And then for all, all eternity, there's my wrong guess, right? I'm not a voting member of the Academy, but if I had a vote, my vote would be for Penelope Cruz in, in Parallel Mothers. Yeah, my pick is actually Kristen Stewart because I think she's just amazing as Princess Diana and Spencer. But Penelope Cruz, flawless performance, I would say. And it's it's a hard role to do because it's, it is so emotional and it's so visceral that, you know, in the hands of somebody less skilled, it, it could have been maudlin. When you think about that long partnership between Emma Dovar and, and Penelope Cruz, um, if we had to single out like a single film, why not start with this new one? I mean, if you really want to understand how well a director and actor work together, it's really, there's something that at uh, an almost telepathic level, I don't want to get esoteric here, but Marie, pick up on this notion because after a while, when a director and actor really are in sync, you know, they, and they talk about this in interviews sometimes, and both of them have talked about this in interviews, you don't need to even like really say anything. You're on the set and you know what to do and you just, you're so simpatico. And I think that that vibe comes across to an audience. I mean, what do you think about this? Because my feelings, when I watch her on screen, even when she's not saying anything, you can read her thoughts, you can see how carefully framed she is and how she and Emil Dovar are totally on the same wavelength, if you will. So even at that level of, of where we're meant to smile, like where she says, oh, I'm a mess today. And you're thinking, what, this is a mess? But I mean, this, this is like the movie, movie quality of it. That the movie star is always going to look like a movie star, even when she's scrubbing the floor. Yes. And I've seen Penelope Cruz in other things. She's always likable. She's always gorgeous. But I think she's at her best when she's with him doing the movies with him. And I cannot imagine one of his movies without her. It's almost like when you see that he's got a new movie out, you know, oh, good, let's go see what he's going to put Penelope Cruz through in this movie, which I think is one of the pleasures of when you have that kind of partnership. It's a twofer. So Mike, in terms of best international film, this is going to be up against Drive My Car, Flee, The Hand of God. I'm sorry, it isn't even nominated in that category. I'm now looking at this. I, for some reason, I, I assumed it was. How is it not in here? The Hand That's of God. That's my point. <laughs> Lunana, Aliak in the classroom and the worst person in the world. I'm floored. I can't understand at all why it's not in there. It just totally reinforced the point we were making that, you know, talk about we was robbed, <laughs> you, you know, or they was robbed. Uh, they, they, how could not have even been nominated in that category? I understand what, what, why, why you would say that, because I look at that list thinking, wait a minute, is there, isn't there one missing here? And yeah, it's Parallel Mothers. I mean, there are a few good films on that list that I'd recommend, but goodness sakes, Parallel Mothers is not on the list. But that ultimately goes back to the fact that each country places forward the film it wants nominated. In other words, you know, Spain, you know, put another film forward that didn't make the short list. But, you know, and I'd have to actually look back at exactly the whole process in terms of what Spain was putting forward. But my whole point is that it's not on the list seems almost criminal, doesn't it? I completely agree. I think it's a, it's a major, major omission. Anything else you want to say about this movie before we talk about the 355? Now, let's move along to 355 at this point, which, again, we have the same actor to talk about, but a film that I'll be polite and say is not quite as good. 
I'll just come right out and say that it's completely mediocre. And I wanted to like this movie so much. It has so many people in it that I like. Besides Penelope Cruz, I mean, it has Jessica Chastain in it, who I think is fantastic in, in so many in so many things. And in fact, she's up for an Academy Award for a different movie. But in this, the idea is great. Let's have a movie about spies, but there'll be female spies. And, you know, we'll just take a different look at the spy world, you know, with, with women doing the, the running and chasing and cars and guns and everything. Somehow, even though the premise is fantastic, it just didn't work. Now, let me pick up on that notion because the basic premise is let's take essentially James Bond and Mission Impossible type material, which is usually such a swaggering macho kind of genre element, right? Let's take that, take it from the guys, if you will. Let's have female leads here. Let's do a gender switch, whatever. And just at the, at the basic level of premise and of plotting, that seems like it should not only be viable, but indeed welcome. And as Marie was saying, you do have a cast of actors you do want to watch here. You've got Jessica Chastain, who's also the producer of the film, as, as well as the star. But also you have Lupita Nyong'o. You've got Diane Kruger, Penelope Cruz, as we've been talking about, Van Bingding. I mean, it, you know, the, the, the watchability factor is definitely here. Something goes wrong, and it's, it's at several levels. The most crucial level is the fact that once they came up with this as a premise, they went back and, and gave us a story that's just oh so familiar. So uh, even though I was being polite saying it wasn't all that good a film, and then Marie went further and said it was mediocre, I'd go even further than mediocre. It's really not a good film. It, it has not done well at the box office, it did not do well critically, had negative reviews. And, you know, uh, let me give a very quick excerpt from one of the film reviews, because this really nails, I think, what, what the problem is here. And I'll point out for the sake of gender discussion here at the moment, that the New York Times reviewer was Amy Nicholson. And here's what she said about the film. Quote, proving that women can make an expensive adventure that is every bit as banal as the ones the boys have been cranking out every month with basically the same plot close quote. So what she nailed there was the fact that, okay, they had that premise, let's go with it. But you know what, once you get into the story, it's the usual nonsense, busy nonsense, I call it, of somebody with a, a, a gizmo that could destroy or at least alter the world and the, the chase for it. And, and that the women are, you know, going after this thing. And they're all from, uh, you know, I don't get bogged down character by character, but they're from different nations, different security and national security outfits, blah, blah, blah. So the point there is that these women come from different places. You know, I'm from the United Kingdom, I'm from the United States, from wherever, and I work for my spy agency, meaning not only do I not trust the bad guys, I don't trust some of the other ostensible good guys, right? You know, there's a level of trust that has to be established. So, okay, they're going to work through all that. But you know what? It, it just doesn't really go anywhere in terms of character development. It's really hectic. It moves around a lot all over the world. But it doesn't take you any deeper into character. It doesn't really give you a story that means much or that you care much about. It's really, you know, as Marie says, says mediocre, it's like less than mediocre. And the one other knock I want to make against it, I'll talk as if I were a film executive, like, you know, greenlighting a project. And, and, and somebody came to me and said, hey, you know what, let's take Mission Impossible, let's take James Bond, and it'll, we'll put women in those roles. And I think, yeah, you know, in terms of contemporary thinking. I mean, it's a logical, you know, desirable move. Let's do it. Let's go with it. But then they come back to me and they say, okay, well, that's our idea. And, and I say to them, well, what are you going to call this movie? And I'm thinking like all the, the, the what I call sellable titles. And I'm talking in a, a deliberately crass way. I'm a film executive at the moment. And they say, oh, well, we're going to call it the 355. And I would say the what? <laughs> and now 
As academics, Marie and I can appreciate what we call teachable moments. So the teachable moment here in the classroom would be, well, you know, during the Revolutionary War, there was a female spy, a patriot, you know, fighting for George Washington's army. Indeed, she helped to, you know, unveil Benedict Arnold and so on. There's an actual historical figure, and her code name was the 355. Therefore, we, the makers of this movie, will, because we have all women in the lead roles rather than men, we'll call the movie The 355. Now, as an academic, always looking for teachable moments, always wanting to bring hitherto hidden history to light, all that good stuff, right? I say, yeah, let's go with that. That's a great teachable moment. And then I think, well, you know, but let's say I'm not part of this conversation between film executive and filmmakers about, you know, the actual historical origins of 355. I'm just a moviegoer. I'm looking for something to watch tonight. And I'm just based on titles, the 355. It doesn't tell me anything. It doesn't really speak to what the movie's about. It doesn't really have any information that I either get immediately, or at least I'm curious about. It's like one of those like shoulder shrugging, huh? <laughs> What's the name of this? Marie, let me get your take on this. Cause I thought like it was a terrible choice for a film title. I could not agree with you more. It is a terrible title because it sounds the 355. What is it about? An interstate? <laughs> you know, it does gives you no idea what you're what you're about to watch. You'd have to actually do some research before you watch the movie to figure out why they came up with that title. Most people just, you know, you, you depend on the title to sell the movie. What I find puzzling is that this film was the hottest selling item at Cannes. Everybody wanted to pick it up, probably because the premise sounds promising. We have Jessica Chastain, we have Penelope Cruz, we have Lupita Nyong'o. It's women getting a chance to do what, you know, James Bond has been doing. The idea is great, but you're right. It is bogged down completely with, you know, gizmotron. You know, you find yourself, okay, well, here's the, here's the car chase scene. And then that's over. And then, oh, okay, well, here's the, uh, you know, the device, the, the cool device scene but it doesn't feel new it doesn't feel fresh it doesn't feel like there's any reason to have made this movie with women or men in it it's i don't know perfunctory tokenism in some ways in terms of you know giving each character screen time it feels forced it doesn't feel natural but i want to get your take on the fact that i was it was clearly to me meant to be a franchise that if this was a hit then they would take these characters and then make more movies with them you know, the, the chick version of the spy movie continuing into several sequels. And while sometimes it takes like a new series, a few seasons to get, you know, the idea under their feet and then kind of figure out how to make it work. I don't know that audiences are going to come back for the reboot or the remake or, you know, the sequel. What do you, what do you think, Mike? Well, you know what? This is one of the things that really bothered me about the film. As I'm watching it, you know, follow the narrative arc to the extent there is one. The women are from different spy agencies, different nationalities and so on. They're not going to trust each other, but they have to work together, you know. And OK, so that's like taking you halfway through the arc, right? Then coming down the other side of the arc would be they are going to work together. They're going to deal with this gizmo issue, to put it that way. And then as it heads into the home stretch, without spoiling the ending at all, it's essentially, I can safely say, setting us up for sequels. And that bothered me so much because I'm thinking, I don't even want to watch this original one, much less a sequel, but so much of the final scenes were blatantly setting you up for sequelitis. And to Marie's point, like, you know, if you don't want to see this film with men in it or with women in it, that doesn't leave much by way of casting possibilities. So you don't want to see anybody in it. You don't want to see it made. And that's, again, where I, I keep using the word crass because this really is at the level of, you know, they are conniving to, to launch a new franchise. They haven't put much thought into this first installment and yet they somehow expect us to be waiting through every last minute of the film because it's going to set us up for what comes next that speaks to the nature of the film industry today the assumption or the presumption 
that we would want to have a sequel to this. You know, what's interesting is although the film had a lot of hoopla in advance, Marie mentioned that when it opened at the box office, it opened very soft. I'm being polite and saying soft. It just didn't do perform well at all. It's not really a good film. And this is an interesting question. In a case like this, where you got off to a disappointing start financially by way of box office return, even though they're set up for a sequel, will it actually happen? And this is a case where nothing's been announced yet, but they're probably wondering themselves, gee, if you had like such a disappointing first installment, do you really want to green light? Because movies are really expensive to make. I mean, you have to really think about this. Do you want to green light the next one? So Marie, I'm taking it that you and I would vote against that. We really do not want to see a sequel to this. No, and I think it's because it's actually more like The King's Man than James Bond, because it's an ensemble cast. And I think that might have been the kiss of death here, that if you wanted to do something like Jane Bond kind of thing, you need one character to coalesce around. It was like they tried to spread that around too thin, and there wasn't enough of a plot to carry the day. But you know what? And this is actually sort of beating them to the punch. Namely, think about the last James Bond picture. It's already setting us up for, you know, what comes, what life is there after Daniel Craig, right? And, and all the speculation, there's, you know, what, what will be the nationality? What will be the race? What will be the gender of the next James Bond? We may well, I mean, I have no inside information on this whatsoever, but just based on everything we know from the last film and things that have been said about it, we may well have a Jane Bond. And, and if that's the case, many more people would want to see a female actor as James Bond that would have any interest in watching any sequel to the 355. I mean, what do you think there? Because I I think in some ways it's a losing cause if the 355 tries to launch a new franchise, because I think James Bond may beat them to the punch. Yeah, I think you're right about that, Mike. And that brings us to the end of this episode. Don't forget to check out our other podcasts at dragondigitalradio.podbean.com and also under Dragon Digital Radio on Pandora and Spotify. And we'll see you next time at the movies. See you then. Connect with us. We are Dragon Digital Radio.